Well, it started by thinking about we could spend forever on the first noble truth, so we could spend forever on the four noble truths, or there would be nothing that wasn't testable with the four noble truths. Um, maybe that's a way to think about it. Stephen Batchelor, in his book, um, Confession of a Buddhist Atheist, which is one of my all-time all favorite Dharma books, really. Not, it's not confessions. Usually read Confessions of uh, St. Anthony or Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. It's really his manifesto, his what he believes is true. Of um, of the the big accumulation of things that are attributed to the Buddha, There's the, the, there is the truth of um, there are the things that the Buddha taught, or the things that are attributed to the Buddha, and then also uh, there are all the stories, many of which, uh, when I tell about them here, I I uh, contextualize. I say it is said about the Buddha that. So that's a sign that there's a folk tale about that. I was reading this morning about, I don't even, I, I guess I was reading it in uh, Mark Epstein's Trauma of Everyday Life, where he was repeating the story of, um, of the Buddha's mother giving birth to him uh, while on a trip. Uh, she had been uh, someplace and was attempting to return home in time to uh, deliver her baby, and apparently it began to arrive en route. So the story is that she alighted from the sedan chair that she was being carried in and leaned her arm against the side of a tree, and the Buddha was delivered out from under her arm. So I actually don't think it happened that way. <laughs> But I think there's a value to uh, to all these stories where I don't think it actually happened that way. Uh, my uh, uh, my colleague, and uh, somewhat I'm pleased to say my friend, uh, Alan Jones, who has retired now as the dean of Grace Cathedral, used to say uh, about his teaching of the doctrine of Christianity, he, says, he said a number of times, I don't believe the story, but I'm a believer. And I've used that uh, sometimes when I've been talking about uh, Buddhism and what the Buddha taught, that there are miracle stories that have to do, that come up around every uh, enduring religious tradition. And I think they come up because uh, we're storytelling people and we embellish things and Besides, people remember them better if you tell it in a dramatic way. Uh, and I think that the, old, the older the story is, the more likely it is that it's a myth that carries a message. Uh, uh, let's think about, uh, I hadn't planned to think about this, but it comes to mind, the, uh, the central story of Judaism, in, as told in the Hebrew Bible, is the story of the uh, exodus from Egypt. I'm a member of the Congregation Road of Shalom. I love to be there. And it's, 
It's the religion of my youth. It's the ethics of my adulthood, as is Buddhism the ethics of my adulthood. And uh, it's a nice community to be part of. I don't think, nor does anybody there think, that there actually was an exodus from Egypt. There's no historical record of an exodus from Egypt, and there's no record of a Moses prince of Egypt, but it's a wonderful story. And the way that I tend to interpret it in my own mind is that it's really this quintessential story that we all have. It's the Buddha's story as well, that we are slaves, and that the Egypt that we are trapped in is the, the trap of a narrow mind that doesn't have room to say, well, this is what's happening. It wasn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And how am I going to make myself at home here? If the answer to the question is, um, what would be the question? What would be a liberated mind? A liberated mind would be one that would be able to dwell comfortably in any situation. Every once in a while we tell stories about people who not only get born in miraculous ways, but people who die in ways that we really, really admire. Um, my friend Verna died two weeks ago, as I mentioned here, and uh, she didn't say a pithy thing at, at her last breath. As far as I know, she was asleep at her last breath. But she didn't have a problem with the fact that she was dying weeks before, and she knew she was. It just didn't fill up her mind. What actually filled up her mind was the uh, big bird, I think it was a, a, a crow or a robin or something, that had intruded into the bird feeder that was hanging outside her window and was throwing out feed from the bird feeder and not letting the small birds that she had actually hoped were going to inhabit that bird feeder get at the food. So she thought about that, and she thought about... Uh, she thought about her friends, and she thought about uh, different people that she had to tell different things. But she didn't, uh, uh, I, I want to take that back, she thought about different people that she wanted to tell different things, but didn't have to. She didn't live with imperative, and she didn't die that way either. And so I like to think that she died with a contented mind. It was just doing whatever it was doing. I, I actually think of it as a miracle story. Uh, maybe because I, I loved her a lot, but uh, it's hard not to dramatize that situation. Um, you know, it just came to my mind, I'm going to read to you from one of these things, it just came to my mind that when my father was in the last days before he died, uh, and I was at his bedside, and uh, uh, he was mostly sleeping or in a coma or deeply asleep, and every once in a while he'd stir and almost get up, and um, he'd start to do that kind of uh, heavy breathing uh, that people often do just before they're going to die. It's, it's got a name. What's it called? Uh, Chain Stokes. Hmm? Chain Stokes breathing. Yeah, no, no, no. There's something else. Uh, I know that one. Um, anyway. Death rattle. Something like that. <laughs> no, it's got a word uh, that has to do with the fact that it's... Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. You all know what it is. He'd start to do that kind of breathing, and I would leap up, and I would start to talk to him, and I had a more or less a thing that I said, this is all right, Dad, relax. 
<laughs> this is it. You did a wonderful job. Everybody loved you. I love you. Your grandchildren love you. Everything is great. This is exactly what you're supposed to do. This is it, Dad. And I do the same thing, and by and by, he'd fall back to sleep again. And then some, an hour would go by, and he'd start to do it again. I'd get up, and I'd go into my thing again. And at one point, he opened his eyes and looked at me, and he said, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And, uh, you know, and I actually think that that was, that was one of his biggest legacies to me. It's not that big of a deal, you know. You're alive for a long time, and then you're not. And he was lucky it wasn't a big deal. He wasn't in pain. Uh, he was just dying. So you could all, yeah, I, 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 you know, I don't want to say that was a wise thing. It was just what he did, and it was in that moment, I think, wise. If we're going to uh, equate wisdom with the ability, the innate ability, to choose wisely, choose in the direction of non-suffering at any time, that uh, without even thinking I'm choosing non-suffering. One of the things that we talked about last week was one of the things, when we were just finishing, people talked about um, uh, if we all shared in common something, uh, an awareness that there's a way to be where the mind is not the mind is really relaxed. It's just doing whatever it's doing, and it's not a problem. Which includes even uh, having some, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a distressed state, or a state that could become distressed, uh, like when you're waiting for someone to give birth to a baby, and it's not coming out, and it's not coming out. So you really actually... Eager, there's probably a little free zone of concern. Let's get out of there. It's a little bit impatient. Okay, push. This was a long time. Maybe something's the matter. But there's a way of feeling that impatience and all of that and having um, a space around it to say, okay, all this is here and it's not inappropriate to hear. All of those are true. I want that baby out. I want to see it well. But it's being held in a context where it's not a problem, all those things. Of course you're a little impatient. And of course you're a little bit wishing it would be out and wishing it'll be well and wishing the tension will be over. But a little bit of tension around that time is okay. Like a little bit of tension around the going out of this world is okay. You want it to go well. But it doesn't have to be a problem. The tension does not have to be a problem. The, it, it's... Um, there's a, thank you very much. There's a specific kind of tension... I think that's problematic, and that's a tension that says it needs to be otherwise. It should be otherwise. But they're, you know, waiting for a child to get born, waiting for a piece of a person, for the death of a person who is clearly leaving this world. It shouldn't be otherwise. That's how it is to be getting born or dying. And thinking about how much we have um, fixed ideas. When I was talking about something rather last week, I was saying, you know. Maybe we could just talk about the Four Noble Truths forever, or maybe we could talk about the Five Hindrances forever. So it would get boring, but actually I don't think so, because it would be the whole of life. We could pick out what is your favorite single Dharma line, like the peace is possible, and we could talk about it the whole life. I heard it was, what, what are the things that get in the way of that, what gives rise to that, why does that happen? 
that I that I had some period of time when I had been teaching for quite a long time and giving the same talks about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five Hindrances and the Eight Something Else and the Six Something Else. I thought, what if I run out of things to say, you know, because there's a limit. But instead of finding more and more new topics, I found that there are less and less new topics. It's all one topic, and the topic is how we're going to do it. That's all, you know, really, how we're going to make ourselves at home in this absolutely complex life all the time. Last week, so we'll start with uh, how is it to change a fixed view. Did you see this article in the in the newspaper on Sunday? It's in, it was in the Sunday Times. Did anybody see it? It's a yes. Somebody saw it. You saw it, Ruth. It's a, a question that says what what emotions are and what they aren't, and so it's got a cutout of a person. And if you could see it up closely, you'd see that the person is full of what looks like colon you know, all wrinkled up in there. And usually these kinds of guts, you see in a drawing, you see a heart and a lungs and a pancreas and a liver. And this stuff is relegated to this part in the middle of their, in the middle of their belly down here. It's not down the legs and up the arms and in the head. Now looking at this, and truth to tell it, it gave me a very creepy feeling. I mean, I don't know if you can see it well enough, but... I'll pass it around to you, just so you can see. Maybe I'm the only person who has a creepy feeling. But, and I was thinking, maybe it's a creepy feeling like you have when you see a Magritte painting and the head is an, under the arm or something's in the wrong place. Maybe that's, that's the creepy feeling. But on the other hand, I, I thought about... I'll tell you what it says in the article. The, the article makes a particular point. How many people here have heard the word amygdala? Amygdala. How many people think they know what an amygdala is, more or less? More or less. What's an amygdala? Just show them what's an amygdala. It's a part of the brain. Is, is it not the, di- what's the dinosaur brain? Uh, it's, it's, why would it be a dinosaur brain? I think that's why one of the ways that it's classified that uh, there's that in the primitive limbic level of the brain, there's a part of it that says, "Is it going to eat me, or am I going to? Do I eat it, or does it eat me?" And therefore, either relax or attack. That's what uh, that and and if it decides, this is I, I think an, an understanding of it. If the amygdala. Which get which according to most descriptions gets gets impressions faster than thinking it over. It gets snap impressions. Uh, it would pounce before thinking. I mean, uh, I, was it here last week when I was saying at some point evolutionarily? This is my, not my idea. Was I, I think it comes from uh, Sapolsky at, at Stanford. He said, at some point evolutionarily, it became very important for human beings to be able to notice, is that big beige lump behind that tree a rock, a big beige rock, or is it a lion behind that tree? And that it's extremely important to make the right call about whether it's a lion or a beige rock. 
because if if it's a lion, you make the wrong call, you'd be dead. If everything looked like a beige lion, you'd be a wreck uh, of, of tension, looking around for beige lions. Or, so, that the, but on the other hand, you do really have to make those kinds of on-the-moment determinations whether or not to swerve in your car. How many people are riding along and all of a sudden you swerve because it looks like an animal on the side of the road and it's a tire that has peeled off and is lying there? And you feel so relieved because you didn't hit the tire and it wasn't a dead animal. So is that what the amygdala is? So that particular article that I just passed around says, it's not what you think. Uh, and we've been thinking that for 20 years. I heard Dan Goldman give a talk on that in 1992, which is now 23 years ago, as if it was absolutely true and that it was that place in the brain that got all the signals and transferred it through one particular neuron to the whole rest of the response system. It turns out that that's a tremendous uh, oversimplification First of all, there aren't anywhere in the body one neuron doing anything. There's like billions and billions of neurons doing things. And there are people who are born, and amygdalas also recognize uh, wonderful and rewarding things, something that's beautiful, something that's lovely. So it's not just looking for, for danger. And apparently... Uh, my, the, the latest conversation I had, I talked on the phone with my friend Cliff Saren yesterday, who many of you have met because he's come and talked about um, neurobiology and mindfulness. He said it's not actually that there's an amygdala there. There's actually, he, he said there is an organ. He said, but really it's in that area of that organ there are a whole bunch of uh, assorted different bunches of neurons, I'm probably doing this all wrong, who all have specific tasks so that it's like it's not like alerting a person to go out and bring first aid. It's like alerting a community to run out. And the community runs out in manifold different ways. It's you know it's like the bell rings for a whole community of neuronal systems. So I spent much of yesterday reading big articles about neurology. And finding, first of all, I'm, I'm very interested in them. And second of all, I'll come back and tell you more about them when I get them. Third of all, would you love it if, Chris, if Cliff came sometime and talked about the kind of what we here as practitioners uh, would like to know about neurobiology and how this works? Because he is a preeminent researcher in, as far as I know, on having done... Uh, extensive research, which he sometimes does here, on uh, the effects of mindfulness meditation. So would you like it if I asked him to come? I'll do it. I'll do it. One of the things that it definitely does, because this is the important thing that that arches it up, there are two important things <laughs> that I want to make the point. That's why I pass that around. First of all, did you find that creepy? Or is it just me that finds the picture creepy? It's creepy? It's just me? Really? How many people think it's creepy, no? I had the hardest time looking at it. It somehow creeped me out. Uh, it'll come around. 
but that's interesting. It didn't creep out anybody else. I, the thing that I was thinking about is, again, this is entirely on an anecdotal level. I think that the human, I'm not surprised, in other words, that there isn't a respo one response nexus that governs the whole world, like, like one motor in the car. That what she says in, the, in that article is that the whole body responds to everything. And I actually think that the whole, I, I, if, if we were at a, having a, a, a retreat here, and we were here long, I would teach you uh, movement meditation or walking meditation. And the first thing I would say, what would be, our whole body is an antenna. We broadcast messages out of ourselves in all directions all the time. And we pick up messages from the whole world all the time in different ways. We're walking along and the back of our uh, shoulder gets warm. We move over here because we realize we've walked into the sun all over the place. Things happen in all of the body that, that uh, cause it to keep on moving, but are all the time feeding data into it. We don't just get the data in through these eyes and nose and ears and mouth and skin. And we keep steering ourselves based on all that data. And also, I, I am thinking when I say we're, we're antennas broadcasting, there are some people that when you're in a room and they come in, the whole room gets better. Isn't that true? And there are some people when they come in a room, the room gets worse. <laughs> So it must be that we are broadcasting something that's nonverbal. The stories about His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, may sometimes be inflated to the level of mythic, but I have been in those stories myself, so that I know that they're not mythic. All right, I can tell this story. I was deciding whether it was a story that was good to go out on the airwaves and have the whole world know about it, and I was censoring it. It might not be, but then I can have them not put this up. You'll tell me at the end. Uh, in 2000, there was a big conference here of uh, Buddhist teachers for East and West. So uh, they were all, the conference was in English, so they were all English-speaking Buddhist teachers, but from Europe and Canada and South America and and uh, a fair number of Tibetan monks that were actually part of the Dalai Lama's retinue and all the Western teachers who were Americans and Australians. And language was English. 210 or 214 of them were here for a week. It was, kind of, it was really like a great costume party because they were all dressed in their outfits. And we wish that we had had some outfit because we don't have, a, you know, they have outfits. We talk about we have to have an outfit. Even our monks have outfits, and there are pictures of me standing with Ajahnamaro and a few others of our monks and our nuns. They have outfits, but we don't. Anyway, so these people were here, all these people milling around for a week, and it, it, there were a whole day full of stories that you could tell. Um, But the, one I wanted to, the story I want to tell is everybody stayed here on campus except for the Dalai Lama. That couldn't happen because he has tremendous um, 
security around him. He is the head of state in exile, and so he's got uh, secret service with him all the time. So he stayed at some location where I actually didn't know where he was. Some people knew. Somewhere in Woodacre, somewhere, and with his whole retinue. And every day at a certain time, uh, on the second and third and fourth day when he was there, he w we would all be in the meditation hall up on the top of the hill, and he would drive up with his car, would drive him up, and he'd get out and come in. And I think there were two days before he did not appear. He was late to come because he had to be somewhere else. During those two days, a lot of um, a lot of topics were brought up. So the Theravada community was represented, and the Zen community, and various levels, the Thich Nhat Hanh community, and the rest of the Zen community, and other Zen community, and various uh, Tibetan lineages were there. Everybody was there, and. They had uh, mostly not speakers, but panels with representatives of all lineages discussing problems of the world and Buddhism's of Dharma's possible effect on them, and also discussing intra-dharmal uh, things that I think never... We're quite unique here in the last 20 years, in the last 30 years, 40 years. More Buddhists in different lineages have talked to each other in cordiality than in the whole history of Buddhism, I think. Mm -hmm. That it's been quite a parochial scene until quite recently. And I think when it met East, when it met Western religion, where we are in the habit of ecumenical respect and talking to each other, interfaith dialogue, people have begun to talk, and not in a sparring way, mine is better than yours, but what do you do about this, and what do you do about that, and how do you cultivate that? For example, I think that the practice of loving-kindness has been the biggest present that the Theravada tradition has given to the other lineages uh, over these years. Uh, and it's been, it's been significant, um, particularly in Zen, I think, but, but really all over the place, I think we've made a significant not by preaching, but by teaching each other. Anyway, on the first or the second day, there were a couple. There was some moments of discord, uh, intra-community. One of them was. Uh, it doesn't even matter. I won't tell you what the discord was. And the truth is, I remember the communities that were involved, but I don't even remember the discord. But people were talking about it in a civil way. But uh, there was like tension in the room in there, uh, up on top of the hill in the discussion. And there was also a little tension about um, the Dalai Lama's arrival, because we had to spend some time uh, acquainting everybody who is here with what's the protocol around the Dalai Lama. And there was a tremendous amount of um, security that was going to come. And it involved that everyone had to go out of all the residence buildings early in the morning so that the security could sweep through with their smelling dogs to make sure that there was nothing bad in the, in the dormitories. And some people took umbrage about it. I, you know, not certainly saying who took umbrage, but people took umbrage. I'm not getting up for any security. <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't think that, but it happened. Anyway. Uh, and... Uh, 
there was a lot of talk about what is the protocol around the Dalai Lama? Do you bow? Do you not bow? What if we're not bowers? What if we didn't all they need? We don't bow. This back forth. Did everybody do whatever they want? <laughs> they decide. Okay. So here comes, we're all up in that hill. I love this moment. And here comes the, the car with the Dalai Lama up the hill. And some of them, I'm happy to say, I got to be one of the people who went out in front and got to stand there and, you know, salute him as he came the last, you know, down just the path into the, the, the building. I have a photo, I'll bring it next week, of, the, of uh, uh, Mahagosananda, who was older, uh, and uh, the Cambodian Theravada uh, senior delegate came, came out and... Uh, he came out and he greeted the Dalai Lama. And there's a photo that's classic. I think it might be up in the Gratitude Hut, where the both of them are bowing to each other. And one is trying to bow lower than the other. They're just bowing. It was a very sweet to be out there. Then we walk into the room with uh, 214 people in there. And been all this discussion about I bow, I don't bow. I'm, this, these are two organizations that are mad at each other about something or other. Dalai Lama walks in, everybody stands up, everybody turns around, everybody bows. All the way down to the floor, it just happened. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> something happens in people's minds where all of a sudden something clears them. I don't think he's got a magical force like kryptonite, like Superman, but it's a story of this is the Dalai Lama, this is a weighty lineage. All of a sudden, you don't want to not bow because of some. You know, something of, uh, in your mind that says, you know, <laughs> I'm not doing it. It's so, un it's so clear that uh, no, I, I imagine some people were surprised to find that they did that suddenly, having said, I'm not doing that. Everybody did. And when he left as well, everybody did. And I think everybody liked it because it was a moment of non-content. It was like out of our hands. Of course, everybody is bowing. That's only half the story, because as I tell you that story, that's a nice story, I think. You like that story? Mm -hmm. I'll tell you the other story I know, which really makes the point of what I wanted to say, and then I want to go back to more, much more recent. I went to uh, uh, Tucson, Arizona, in the early 90s to a, con a conference that His Holiness led there. He was teaching, uh, he was teaching about patience. And uh, for a whole week, he was reading a text on patients, and 2,000 people were there. And uh, he'd come in, teach all morning, go out, teach all afternoon, go out. And the last day, but he had been so amazingly genuine in his teaching. When he finished, people hung on every word. Everybody was in the seat when he started. That you could not go, if you went out, during a teaching period, you couldn't come back in. It really was a very, very dignified experience. And people were spellbound by his reading and his exegesis of text, one, you know, one verse at a time. And when he finished, on the fifth day, when he finished the last verse, he suddenly went like this and caught his head in his hands and uh, was all hunched over. And he looked like he'd fainted, or you know, if you're if you're like me, you think, oh dear, he had a stroke. 
just fell down, something happened, aneurysm, who knows. And he stayed like that a while. And then he sat up, and he was wiping his eyes. And you could see that he was so moved by the last chapter of that, which made the same point that the whole chapter had made, but once again, it's like you read every, cha- every verse in the patience chapter says, no matter what happens, you really have to recontextualize it in your mind so that anger does not come out from you. Figure it out, do it another way. Because really, anger that arises blurs the mind and makes it impossible to do the right thing. And by the time he had finished, he had so made the case that he burst into tears about it. And you think, this is not the first time that he read it or taught it. It's probably the nth time that he read it or taught it. But was apparently so moved by its how it rang in him. You could feel it in the whole room, like everybody got it in that moment, I think. And then when the next day, when he was leaving, I wasn't at this place at moment, but I heard it. When he was leaving, the uh, the staff at the, what was some grand hotel, like a Hilton or something, the staff all knew that he was going to leave at a certain time and that he was going to file out from his room and walk across the lobby and go out into a car that was going to take him to the airport. And the uh, hotel staff was all lined up along the path that he was going to go, including the busboys and the waiters and the room cleaners and everything. And he went by each of them, and in his normal way, not only this, but he did it over their hands and their hands and their hands, each person touching their hands and looking at them, and they were all crying. And so the thing about we feel... When I told you that story, did you feel it in your body? All over your body, right? I think that's what that article is about, that we, we, hearing is not a linear thing where the sounds go in our ears, a sound bangs on our ears and fires neurons that bang on the auditory nerve that creates a picture or that creates an understanding. Uh, I think much more happens. That happens and other neurons go into play and the body feels either tense or untense or warm or unwarm or you get um, goose flesh. I think we feel with our whole body, that we sense with our whole body. We sense particularly with ears or eyes or nose or mouth, but the whole sensual organism is part of it. I think that's what it means about vibes when someone comes in or out of the room. I was reading an article about uh, someone's decision having realized that, that she wanted to be a vibe machine that broadcast good music so that people would like it when she came into a room. But we all would like that, I think. Uh, to do that, you have to not be afraid because that means that your whole being is open to the experience. 
The last line that the Buddha has said, said to have said, is move into the future with confidence. It's also been translated as strive on with (coughs) diligence. So the second translation is Andy Olensky, and it's more recent. Is it move into the future, even step into the future with confidence. And that's such a nice, I like that very much. I wanted to show you this last, this most recent issue of the Shambhala Sun. This is uh, Pema Chodron and Katie Lang uh, in, uh, and it, it has a big interview with Pema Chodron in it. Pema and I were born in New York City in the same week, in the same month of July, that in the same year. And I don't remember. One of us is six or seven days older than the other one. But I don't remember who's who. Uh, we both grew up there. We both went to school. We both got married. We both had children. And then we both had quite different lives. But uh, I admire her and her work very much. I, I was going to be in touch with her now that I read this. Well, not only is that not working, but the <laughs> lens is falling out. So That's all right. It's good that I can tell you what's in this article. She's, talk, she's talking to um, um, the, the, uh, the person who's the uh, Tammy, Tammy Simon, who's the, um, well, that's that. She's talking to Tammy Simon, who's the publisher of Sounds True. And she's saying the importance in what to know about meditation is that it's to create gaps in your mind. Do you remember earlier, I said the phrase, I heard myself say it, that it's not about having an absence of difficulties in your life or in your mind. It's having space around it so you could say, Huh, I'm have, I'm really getting impatient about this baby getting out of there, or I really have uh, a little bit of tension in my stomach, which I feel uh, about that baby getting out of here. But enough space around it to hold that in 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 clarity, so that the mind has tension in it and it has impatience in it, but it doesn't have to be free or full of any particular quality in order to be all right. The all rightness is just the all rightness. This and this and this is wrong with my shoulder and my cousin and I myself am all right. And the all rightness has to be based, I think, I was talking to Cliff about this yesterday. I said it has to be based in equanimity that the mind is skilled enough in not leaping forward with a decision, I know this is going to be terrible, or I know this is going to be great, I have to grab it. Because you don't know, you know, and a lot of times you don't know, you have to wait, because like in the, in the description of waiting for a baby to get born, it'll get born when it gets born, and if it doesn't get born this way, it'll do something else, get born another way, but also in the knowledge of when I go in to attend the, great, the birth, when I went, it's a long time now, to attend the births of my grandchildren, I was going along with the knowledge that the, uh, the medical people in charge were very skilled. This is a modern hospital. This is a time when people know how to do this. 
So even though there's distress happening, it's probably going to be all right. And so the distress, which under another circumstance would be very difficult to listen to, is okay because we more or less have the sense it's going to happen with the best possible odds for a good outcome. You don't even think about that, but you know not to get the mind knows which is going to go through this, has enough uh, balance in it. This is an important point to make, to make the connection to uh, mindfulness practice, which we ended with last week. I'm going to go back to Pema. I don't want to over-talk myself. Uh, we ended last week by saying, I was saying that Mark Epstein was saying that the practice of mindfulness meditation is like being held by a good enough mother. Do you remember that? First of all, the expression good enough mother comes from um, David Winnicott, who was a primary thinker in child development in the beginning of the in the early part, in, in, oh, by mid-century of uh, the 20th century, when my children were born, uh, now there's millions of books on baby care about every single thing. I had two books. I had uh, Dr. Spock, and I had uh, David Winnicott. I had a book called Mother and Child, which I read every day, ragged, I think, when I had my first child. Uh, the most reassuring thing about it is the first chapter. If you find it somewhere and you know someone who's having a baby, this is the book to give them because it doesn't tell you anything about what to do. I mean, you have a baby, you feed it, you change it, you keep it clean, and you just try to do everything to make it comfortable. But instead of to me, David Winnicott says, well, you know how to care for a child. The main thing is, what can I tell you? You're its mother. You're going to know. Mothers have always done this. They know how to do it. You know, you know when the child sounds like this, that it's got a gas bubble, or when it's, it sounds like that, that it's got this, that it's hungry or it's tired or whatever. And they cry sometimes, and sometimes they start to cry and it's hard to stop. But you actually know what to do. And his whole thing, the reason I was reading it every day was not for some new idea about what I might do with this colicky baby, but a little bit more confidence in myself that I'd figure it out and that more or less we'd come through it together. He also wrote about the importance of consistent mothering for the baby to consolidate a sense of themselves as a potent separate entity. The child psychologists talk about, says it's a very big developmental hurdle for a child to uh, go from an infant that actually has no concept of being separate from its mother and its mother's breast or with a source of food to actually being on a, a separate entity so that when it gets somewhere past six months or eight, nine months, whatever, nine months, I think, and uh, maybe it's sitting in a, in a high chair and its mother steps behind the refrigerator for a minute and she, they can't see her. They're distraught because they've dis mother has disappeared, you know, and then you have to come back. He said that's why babies love to play peekaboo so much, because that's the very thing they're worried about that you'll disappear and you do. Where's mommy? Peekaboo! So you are 
helping the baby reenact the tension of mom disappears and comes back. Isn't that clever to figure that out? Why do we do that with babies? Peekaboo! <laughs> anyway, what he said was, you really have to consistently reassure the child one way, I'm holding you, I'm holding you. You don't even disappear too long, you peekaboo right away. And he said, you know, don't worry about doing it perfectly. All you have to be is a good enough mother. And that was a tremendously important word in the whole world of teaching young people to be, or old people to be, good mothers. But the point is that if you're good, he, he makes the point, and um, uh, Mark Epstein talks about it, said meditating, doing mindfulness meditation is like being held by a good enough mother. And this is how, why it is. Mindfulness meditation is oftenly, often described in the press as being present moment to moment. That's not the definition of mindfulness, you know? When, when you ski down the side of a mountain, you're present moment to moment, which is good because then you don't ride in a tree or fall down or whatever. But really what the definition of mindfulness is, it's the awareness moment to moment, what's happening here, like there's a tree, okay, I'll avoid it, but really, what's happening, what's happening? A breath is coming in, a breath is going out. A thought of my sister-in-law is coming in. Ah, a memory of she did me wrong. Ah, that terrible sister-in-law. I'll have to remember to give her a call later and say, I've never been the same with you since you did that. That The mind gets hijacked by an, by an impulse, hijacked by an unpleasant moment, the memory of my sister-in-law did X and Y, and then it runs away and makes a little fantasy about it and upsets itself with the fantasy that it might or might not do because you, you, you ran for it. The mind ran for it. It said, oh, there's a memory. It's like jump on that memory and run with it. Or the breath comes in and out and you're sitting nicely and uh, all of a sudden you think, ah, oh, I feel really good. This is good, breath in and out at ease. On the way home, I, I, I really want to remember to stop in the supermarket. Okay. You know, in that supermarket, they have that good deli where they have that really good takeout food. And it's such a nice day. We could go outside. We could picnic under the tree. I could bring out my best tablecloth. We could really have a good afternoon there drinking wine under the tree to, and be picnicking under the tree because a pleasant thought came up in your mind. And there's a little tension in that whole story because it's not happening. It's just an idea. And you might go out and it might be raining at that point. You can't picnic under any trees. And the store might be closed and you might get a stomach ache before you get home and make dinner. You don't know. And he said that, the, I, that mindfulness meditation is training the mind not only to notice what's happening moment to moment and the response of the mind to what's happening, but encouraging it not to be um, impulsive in its responses. Sometime, if you're driving your car and you're way home and you see, oh, there's a store with good food that I might make a picnic, then you stop in and you buy the food and make a picnic. It doesn't mean you don't do things. But it means that the practice, the contemplative practice of mindfulness is seeing if your mind can sit down and stay there when you tell it to. Don't jump up when it has a pleasant signal and run off on a train ride with that. And don't run up with a, an unpleasant signal and run off with that. I have a cartoon that I carry around with me, which I probably didn't 
bring today because I always carry the wrong, often carry the wrong supplies, but not today. Yes, today I didn't bring it. It's a cartoon of two dogs sitting in a zendo. Maybe I pass it around. Did you see the one? Two dogs sitting on a, sitting in a zendo on adjacent zabutans. So one of them is explaining the practice there to the other one, and he's leaning over, and he's saying the important thing is to learn how to stay. <laughs> and uh, that's really what we are teaching the mind. You know, that uh, I, I, it's a lot these days to keep the mind staying and not jumping off on some big plan that's often alarming or big, big plan that's beguiling. You know, it's this... Everyone is looking forward, I think. Many people are looking forward to avoiding tomorrow's debate on television. <laughs> and many people are looking forward for a variety of reasons, like, you know, that, who knows? Um, I don't know where I am on that yet. Uh, it's funny how you think about that kind of thing. But uh, it's hard to listen to political rhetoric, when people say things that, uh, are that I hear and register alarm about, so I think, oh. But, you know, we're not there yet. Uh, it, it would be possible, I suppose, maybe we could do this as a homework, to watch it and think, well, this is not, this is just a first debate. Uh, uh, maybe somebody will say something really good. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll change my mind. You know that, you know that uh, that the, one of the one of the lines that most comes up in my mind when I think about how will I have a liberated mind is um, well, two of them. The first line of the. Third of the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. So I have millions of preferences. Uh, so I, I actually prefer to translate that line as the great way is not difficult for those who are not addicted to their preferences, which is, I think, actually the proper translation of it. Because we all have preferences, otherwise we would sit down in restaurants and say, bring me anything. You know, that uh, we all have, you know, everybody looks at a menu and decides, you know. And you look at a menu and you say, well, I'll have this. They say, oh, we just gave out the last order of it. They, it would be lovely if the mind said, oh, too bad, I thought I'd like that, I'll have this. You know, that, I'm just my luck, that never happens, I never get what I want, which is also not true, you know. <laughs> the mind is bizarre if you think of it it says ridiculous things on behalf of whizzing up your mind into an upset but but that the, that one the great way is not difficult for those who have or are not addicted to their preferences and the end of the metta sutta that says the pure hearted one um not not held by fixed opinions. Having no fixed opinions. No fixed views. Not holding to fixed views. Thank you very much. By not holding to fixed views is not born again into this world. All the fixed views 
How many people here have what they would, we don't have to say who you're voting for. We don't know who's running anyway. But do you have pretty much of a view? Who, who pretty much knows who they're going to vote for? Pretty much. Of course, might be that. Who knows that they're going to vote? Yeah. That's nice to hear, by the way, because one of the, I, I didn't surprise, doesn't surprise me. One of the criticisms leveled at meditating communities is that they're absorbed in contemplating their navel and they don't think about the greater good of the whole country. And that, of course, is nonsense. So. All right, I meant to tell you a whole lot more about this, but what Pema is saying is that every time that an impression comes up, a moment comes up, it has a valence on it, and you could run with it to the right or to the left. I need it, I have to get rid of it. And you don't, you say, hmm, look at that. And I'll just wait, and the next moment, look at that. This is in meditation, in life we have to act. In meditation you can act, here you are. Here comes this. Okay, could worry about it, I could plan on it, I could have a fantasy about it, I could get angry about it, or I could choose to sit, I could choose to sit peacefully. I'll choose peace. Every time we do that, she said, you make a gap in your consciousness. She said, and you want to become gapacious. She makes up that word. She said, we want to have gapacious minds. And I think it's a great word. I write to her about that word. A gapacious mind, there's enough room in it for stuff that you didn't expect. There's enough room in it for difficulty. There's also in this issue uh, a, a very short article that I wrote uh, that was a, an answer to a question. Two months ago, there, there, was a, uh, there was a profile of me in the Shambhala Sun. Did you see it? It was pretty cute. I liked it because I wrote it. You know, they, uh, you know, they, uh, I mean, they send you these questions like on the back of magazines, what's your favorite hair product or, you know, what's your favorite vacation spot or so short answers. But they said, what's your favorite, what's a motto that most describes you? So uh, I picked out, I wasn't particularly crazy about the question, but I put, because it's true for me, I suppose, I said, you're never more happy than your least happy child. And somebody wrote in a question, which is it's really a good question, and it, I, I, I think I wrote an all right answer, too, but I'll tell you the question, and then you can think about it and go look it up or something or other. You're never happier than your least happy child. In the May Shambhala, this is a question, dear Sylvia, in the May Shambhala Sun Meet a Teacher Department, you said a motto that represents you is you're never happier than your least happy child. Is that always true? My children are chronically miserable for some compl complex reasons. Is there any way for me to find happiness despite, despite that I love my children above all else in the world? So. You want to know the answer, by the way? Yeah. I'll give you, they gave me, they sent me a few more copies. I can give you two of these. Of course you love your children above all else in the world. The Buddha recognized the strength of the mother-child bond when he said, just as a mother would give her life for her one and only child, 
So should we love all beings. Given the strength of this bond, no wonder you have, your children's distress is painful to you. The problem with the motto I chose, you're never happier than your least happy child, is with the word never. In the middle of feeling that because one of my children, in the middle of feeling sad because one of my children is having a difficult time, I might spontaneously find myself gladdened when I receive a phone call from a friend or see a hawk land on my fence outside or hear a recording of Joshua Bell playing the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. So the point that I go on to make is the word never really is not a useful word. You say, I will never be happy again. In moments we will be. And in that moment, it goes on to say, the moment creates a gap. Uh, the moment creates a gap. And in that gap, you can trust that there's going to get more gaps in the, wor in the mind. And the gaps are gapacious. They, they make a, a space in the mind so that whatever happened that is causing you to be unhappy, your child's unhappiness, or worse, the loss of a child, and uh, all the terrible things that happen, they, uh, they are holdable in a gapacious mind. You know, the, the thing that I remember the most, my mother, my mother died this week, 50... Fifty-three or fifty-four years ago, uh, and uh, I was twenty-three years old. Fifty-six years ago, I was twenty-three years old, and I remember I uh, uh, was across. I was out west, and I flew back immediately that day because the funeral was the next day. And my aunt, who was my mother's only sister and my only aunt, because I'm an only child, my father's an only child. My aunt and I were getting ready to go to the funeral and getting dressed, and I was combing my hair, and I said, um, I said, Miriam, do we put on lipstick? Are people supposed to wear lipstick to a funeral? And she said, I don't know. She said, she said it's too bad Gladys isn't here. She would know the answer to that. <laughs> so, you know, and we both laughed, because it's like so idiotic. It was really too bad that Gladys wasn't there. I was too glad because she was dead, that's why. <laughs> It's too bad, not because we needed cosmetic advice, you know, but, but it was so bizarre that we both laughed. And I thought, in that moment, I thought, this is weird. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And in the middle of it, something was funny. And I knew it. And there was something about knowing that there was that hole in the middle of this most awful thing that had happened to me that was, that was some kind of a connection to it's going to be all right you know you can still laugh right now we'll laugh again anyway i'm sorry that we're so late going over but i don't remember when I'm, am i here next week yes for sure yeah oh good good then we'll finally do the fourth of the four noble truths maybe please do come back <laughs> who wants a shambhala son there you go there you go you're welcome. Nobody found it creepy, that picture. Did you find it creepy? No? Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.